Hello. Hey, bullshitters. Welcome back. This episode is just shockingly timely because we did the producers this week. And not only is it the 20th anniversary of the producers, but we got a lot of drama with an infamous producer to break down as well. And we have the most fabulous guest today. Her name is Heather Shields. Abby, how did you find this fabulous person? Yeah, um, so I'm still in my undergrad, finishing in two weeks, which actually ooh, by the time ooh. this releases, I think that I will be like a literal week away from undergrad. Wow. Like graduation. That's big. It's weird. I like to not think about it, actually. So we're going to think about this. <laughs> but we did this little panel on one of our quote-unquote wellness days with a cool organization called Business of Broadway that's all about breaking down and helping people understand like how the money works in Broadway and how the producing side of things works. Um, I still don't super get it. I really just don't think my brain is made to understand money. I swear I paid attention. I swear I was taking notes. I was asking questions in the panel. I was trying so hard to understand. But like numbers started happening and I was like, oh God, no, please, no. It was really interesting, it was awesome. They did it for some students at USC. I had a lovely time. I reached out to Business of Broadway. I was like, can someone please come be a guest on our show? Because there's no way that I'm going to be able to comprehensively explain everything that you guys explained. Uh, Granted, we don't have time for everything, but we can do some of the best bullet points. And Business of Broadway agreed and sent on over Heather Shields. Oh my gosh. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I am a big fan of the pod. We're so honored because now's the brag on Heather section with her lovely bio. Heather is an award-winning producer and theater manager. She received undergraduate degrees at University of Richmond and later graduated from Columbia University with her master's in arts administration. She made her Broadway debut producing in 2017 with the Tony Award-winning Bandstand. Oh, I loved Bandstand. And was most recently a lead producer on A Christmas Carol. She's also a producer of the off-Broadway hit Puffs, or seven increasingly eventful years of a certain school of magic and met and magic (laughs) that one tripped me up I was like I'm sure I'm making a mistake but no magic and magic which I've also heard of and is super cool yeah and Heather serves as the general manager of the long-running downtown sensation Batsu NYC and opened Batsu Chicago to critical acclaim in 2016 and works for business of Broadway welcome Heather thank you thanks you make me sound so busy (laughs) you must be busy yeah with a 20 month old too Mm. also you're just like you girl boss thank you thank you well i I, she's she's really self-sufficient at this point she's just raising herself she's good (laughs) no i have a very start up young start up young i have a very supportive family and uh, in-laws and my husband and i've been very very lucky to be able to afford a part-time nanny who is uh just incredible and and I'm able to get a lot of work done because of that. <laughs> That's so that right makes on. me so happy. I'm glad that that can be y'all's experience. Yeah, Heather, could you tell? Could you give a better introduction as to like the the idea behind Business of Broadway and what your goals are with Business of Broadway? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So um, we, my co-founders of Business of Broadway, and I want to give them, a, you know, na- name them: Erica Rothstein, Rachel Sussman, and Dana Lerner. Mm-hmm. We were all kind of having conversations together. Slash, most of us were like having conversations with Erica just about how how the business model of Broadway is unsustainable, and how um, and fr- and how you know, truth moment, I was getting, I was in a, I speaking for myself was in a, 
in a lot of moments of frustration, speaking to theater makers who didn't seem to have any comprehension on how the economic model actually worked through mm-hmm. through exactly no fault of their own, to be very clear. And be frustrated with me. Tell yeah, me tell me how it works. <laughs> no, like through no fault of your own. Like it's siloed. There is a, you know, the curtain between onstage and offstage is very thick and heavy. And mm-hmm. Erica, uh, mm-hmm. who is just an incredible human being and always uh i'm i am the the fiery one i would say of the group i am very clearly the aries Mm. and erica was like well why don't we do something about this and all through all of us had this idea but erica is the one who is like let's let's bring it together with the idea of hey we have an opportunity we have through the privilege of being four white cis heterosexual women in in this industry have had the privilege of amassing a certain amount of knowledge and Mm -hmm. uh, we want to create this you know essentially a collective of people uh, who can all have at least a a same shared starting point of knowledge so that because you can't change something if you don't at least know how it's historically operated Uh, Mm -hmm. and so we started in the fall of 2019. My daughter was like eight weeks old. The first class time we taught a class. Very self-sufficient right <laughs> yeah, off the yeah, bat. Yeah, yeah. Teaching yeah. class. She, yeah, she she's was like, like, don't worry, mom. I'll make dinner. Exactly. She, she's like, I'll take the spreadsheet section. <laughs> she's like logging numbers in an Excel spreadsheet while you're talking. She's like, I got it. Don't worry. Keep going. Start her off with data entry, you know? Oh, yeah. And very quickly, of course, uh, in the blink of an eye, our, our work took on a much greater urgency with the shutdown Mm -hmm. and it was very much geared. I will say there are programs like us that are like, Hey, here's how producing works, but they are intense and expensive and long. Like, you know, we're talking months and not funny. (laughs) I bet they're not funny. (laughs) We We try to make it as accessible as possible. Um, But what we wanted to do was create something that was uh, really geared towards theater makers of all sorts who maybe maybe they don't identify as business people maybe they have an interest in doing it or maybe they're just like I just want to understand how it works so I can have a little bit greater agency within my own career so that I don't feel Mm -hmm. like these decisions are being made and I have exactly no understanding of why so that's how we structured the curriculum of like we're anticipating actors directors designers in our classes and that has all been true but we didn't anticipate Mm -hmm was, you know, stage managers and uh, people who work in the advertising agencies and press offices and people who uh, are, are fans of theater and they don't identify any other way. They don't identify as a theater professional. They're, they're a professional fan. Full-time job. Full-time <laughs> job, that's right. And then, you know, we had our, our core curriculum, our, our 101 class, which is two and a half hours, but we started getting a lot of demand for, I want a deeper dive into this into royalties. I want a different, a deeper dive into the actual creative process. So we have started offering now those, you know, second level deeper dive classes, started partnering with universities. Again, we didn't, I think we, I want to say that we anticipated it, but maybe not to the extent that it's become true, uh, that really undergrad programs is where we think that there is the greatest, most urgent need because these are people who are about to leap off into this into this world and 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 we don't feel that all programs are sufficiently arming them with with the knowledge of of how it, it works. That has all happened over the past year. And and then of course I have to say that once George Floyd was murdered, our our work took on even more urgency and necessity. We've been very lucky to partner with, I would say, 
sister organizations or, or I don't want to gender it, uh, partner, like partnering with other organizations that have, um, that have either existed before or exist or have come, uh, come to existence in the past year, uh, that have been really great. And we want to amplify and support their work, you know, people like, um, the industry standard group who are doing a lot of the same work as we are, but actually opening the doors to BIPOC investors and BIPOC fundraisers and, and co-producers. And so, um, we want to work alongside groups like that. And, um, that is why I'm here. And I think, I hope you can tell I'm very passionate about this work mm-hmm. and it's been something that's been really important to me over the past year plus in supplementing, um, the work that I'm, the work that I'm still trying to do as a producer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a general manager. So, as listeners, I'm sure you're sitting there, sh- floored by the pure badassery. I was like, Cassidy, we simply have to have them on the show. I, Somebody I'm still has to pretty come in talk. awe that they are on the show in this current yeah. moment as I read these bios and do all this. A uh, quick flag for listeners who just may not know, BIPOC. Um, uh, black indigenous persons of color. I always mess that up trying to say bisexual in the beginning, and it's it's always an issue. But thank you, yes. thank you for clarifying that, Cassidy. Yeah, we try to break it down just in case. Mm. But yeah, um, amazing. There's so much to talk about today. Yeah, there's really just so many places to start or not start or go from or. Because originally I was like, yeah, we have to have this pure badassery on the show because, and then I was like, of course we have to talk about the producers. Like, that's just funny. That's, that's content. Yeah, we were, truly, we were just like shows about money. Shows that have something (laughs) to do. We're going for it. We're like, oh, this is perfect. But then. And then Scott happened. And he's been happening. So, yeah, I guess we'll do this here before we dive into the show. I was I was thinking, I guess... Dip down, back up with the fun. Yeah, again. absolutely. So for our listeners who might not be involved in this, or for our listeners who might, Scott Rudin is a very notorious producer within the industry. He's had his hands in most large productions. He's part... Not partnered. What? How would you explain his affiliation with Schubert? Well, the Schuberts are the Schuberts are landlords. The Schuberts own okay. uh, seventeen of the Broadway of the forty-one Broadway theaters. Uh, they own the most out <sighs> of anybody. And the Schuberts are are big supporters of of um, uh, Scott Rudin in the sense that when he has a project, there tends to be a theater available for him uh, with the Schuberts, whether or not they are a part of the producing team as well. The most important thing is that they are Broadway landlords. Yeah. So someone. Within an, with a, and I, we've been equating the two this week and I don't love doing it, but just for our viewers to get a view, someone with a Harvey Weinstein level of pull in the industry, the same ability to cancel careers, the same ability to say this makes or breaks you, an absolutely terrible track record of office behavior, and I don't want to call it behavior, office abuse to mm-hmm. workers, to people a lot of the known for punching holes in the wall, known for firing people because they had to attend funerals, known for firing people because they got the wrong breakfast sandwich for him that morning, and just constant yelling, constant berating, and even furthermore, and canceling careers for people who spoke up, who wanted to talk about this. And so most recently, Karen Olivo has decided that she will not return to her role as Satine in Moulin Rouge because the industry has stayed silent around this. And But Moulin Rouge is not produced by Scott Rudin, correct? That's correct. Okay. 
So she's saying she's essentially pushing for a movement for productions, uh, finances to be transparent to the actors so that they know what they are signing off on and not, yeah, agreeing to and what their performance is funding, essentially, mm-hmm. and what their mm-hmm. profits are funding. And since then, because of this backlash, Scott Rudin is now, and the air quotes are coming out, stepping back. And that kind of makes me angry because I don't know how old he is, but older. Stepping back after you've had a full career is not noble, in my opinion. But also stepping back does not does not mean you're not financially benefiting from the harm you have caused and continue to cause. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I just think also there's like a, it's so strange to me to watch all this happen because like, bullying is just kind of common in the arts like yeah. the person who has the most authority in the room gets to be a dick and everybody kind of lives with it because that person is stressed or going through a lot and i'm really curious to see what the culture is in rehearsal rooms moving forward post pandemic and who will be afraid to be called out who won't be afraid and will continue to just kind of be a the hopeful part of me wants to think that like this this just culture of accepting the fact that actors get shit on until they're stars and then they get to shit on other people. I would say, not that I was asked, but what I would say is that there are organizations that within our industry that I wish uh, would have more forcefully spoken out. They still have an opportunity to and something is better than nothing. And stepping back is better than not and not burden of demands on specifically like women of co- a woman of color. Karen yeah, like, she did not have to be the one doing this work at that's all. right and she was doing the work early on she and eden espinoza started artists for economic transparency i think over a year ago at this point or sometime in 2020 and they're doing incredible work and it's work that frankly i think works in a parallel track to what the business of broadway is doing but that being said i i wish that more organizations within our industry have spoken out more i don't know what kind of machinations are happening behind the scenes that doesn't make it okay if they're happening quietly behind the scenes That all being said, one thing that's really important for people to understand, you want to talk about economic transparency. One of the very first things Mm -hmm. that you have to understand is that every single show is its own startup Mm -hmm. and it exists in its own silo. Now, it doesn't exist on its own in its own universe. It doesn't exist in its own galaxy. Like it, it has to coexist with other shows and organizations and stakeholders and power players. But every show is its own startup. And so you can have a very successful career having never worked for or with somebody like like Scott Rudin and be doing really wonderful work without ever sacrificing your own integrity or mm-hmm. having to condone what he the kind of the kind of behavior that he is alleged to have had. I was going to add that Actors Equity is pushing to ask Scott Rudin to cancel his non-disclosure agreements, which I do not think is ever going to happen. I just can't imagine any titan of industries throwing all their NDAs out the window. Titan of industries. And I I don't mean that positively when I say that. I know there was an article in the New York Times 
published about all of this saying there was a lack of visionaries in the space. Oh yeah, that's that's what I wanted to talk about. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. So yes. um, thank um, you, it Heather. was actually Peter it was actually Peter Marks in um the, the Washington Post who broke oh, the story. He broke the story. Shut up, Peter. Yeah, um, uh, mm, we're a little upset with Peter. Yeah, so he, <laughs> we're upset well, with Peter. Peter Marks, Taking it back. Peter Marks is a theater critic and um and reporter and he broke the story that Rudin was going to be stepping back. And he wrote in it that it comes at a really tough time because there's a lack of visionaries within the industry, to which a lot of people were offended. And uh, I don't blame them. And there's been some really great threads on Instagram and Twitter, like just calling out people who are doing incredible work, both on the producer side, but also um, in the nonprofit side and from a director's point of view, you know, directors and artists of all sorts. So it's been really nice to be able to see and amplify those names that maybe have been buried in the past. What I will say though, and this might be an unpopular opinion, is that I believe what Peter Marks was trying to do was to put words to a pervasive feeling right now that is ongoing in the industry, that there is a lack of leadership yeah, from, I was say uh, that. and, and, and it speaks to how I said, every show is its own startup. Every show is trying to do its own thing. There is the Broadway league, but the Broadway league is a trade organization that is made up. It's, it's like saying the, it's like saying, um, no, I'm trying to think of a better, of a good analogy. And I keep thinking like of a, like, like, you know, or 300 people, you, people you should know in the industry and mm -hmm. saying that all of them, like who are all working on their own things, it's hard to get the organization to what I think we need right now. Yeah. And granted, there's no, no head of medicine of Broadway. No, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. And there's, it's also really tough right now, to be fair, nobody anticipated this. Cobug is the coalition of um, Broadway unions and guilds. And it's existed since the early 2000s. And it's it's a coalition of 13 out of the 15 Broadway unions and guilds. It's existed mm -hmm. since the early 2000s, but it only really started like becoming a prevalent thing early on during the pandemic when they were lobbying the state and federal mm -hmm. governments. You know, so like organizations like that, they yes, the, and the Broadway League, I'm not trying to say that it doesn't like, it's not a multi-million dollar trade organization, that it's not the signatory on all of the all the CBAs, which are collective bargaining agreements. So anytime a union has an agreement on Broadway, of which there are 16 of them, uh -huh. the Broadway League is the is the signatory to it as a representative yeah. of all the producers. But beyond the, the labor negotiations, national and state lobbying, which wasn't nearly as urgent pre-2020, and, yeah. you know, marketing and education, the Broadway League isn't this powerful industry titan i think the way that people want it to be right now and that we we, we mm -hmm. could use during a time such as this so um i, I have a question defend. about that yeah. actually yeah okay and this this actually kind of ties back into the producers because i was watching the so the movie that all three of us actually watched the listeners is the um matthew broderick nathan lane one i think this got bad reviews when it came out too i it did but like they like, were wrong yeah. we'll get into it We'll get there. It's a stunning movie. It's visually so beautiful. What was going on? Anyways, it was the first time I had ever seen the producers or listened to any of the music, which is kind of shocking considering I'm 21, Love graduating sparse. with a the theater major. Super into comedy. 
literally would die for Neil Simon. Like, I was like, this is exactly everything I've always wanted. What have I not been doing? But so then I went back and watched the uh, Mel Brooks one from 60-something with Zero. Which is the source material for the musical. Yeah, yeah. It was movie first, then musical. It was shocking that a movie musical is the dramaturgy bomb. And it's not in 2019. Yeah. Dramaturgy Giant Producers is the single most Tony award-winning show, period. All of this to say... Is the Broadway League too young to be this titan that people want it to be? Is it too new to be something that stands up and is the leader that people are hoping for? Or does it just not have the capacity for that? Is that not the role they asked for and then 2020 happened? I think it's the latter. Um, It's not what it was built to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. There, there are a lot of problems with the Broadway League from my perspective. Um, but one thing that mm-hmm. I do want to recognize is the work that they've done with the Shuttered Venues Operator um, Grant with the government. Hopefully by the time this airs, that the uh, application portal will open. It tried to mm-hmm. open um, earlier this month and completely failed. But the Broadway League mm-hmm. has been incredibly instrumental with Senator Schumer, with Chuck Schumer, mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. allocating $15 billion to theaters, producing companies not and that includes nonprofit theaters that includes your local community theater that includes nightclubs and concert venues and zoos and museums now how far this mm-hmm. money will go um Love and how many dancing penguins and how many people how many people will be able to um uh, partake in it is a is a big question mark that everybody has but i run a couple i manage a couple of organizations like you said at the beginning that are all applying for this should we receive that grant it's the difference between do we can we reopen and not um and so mm-hmm. um you know i i i have a a commonly spouted off rant about government how we look at the arts in this country i'm sure we will mm. get to it and uh this is a way this is one way one way in which like i i stand corrected and and look at what we might be able to to do and i do want to give a shout out to the broadway league that like one thing that they were built for which is lobbying mm-hmm. in this time when we've really needed them they have been very successful with that so i will i will just give them the tip of that hat Okay, Broadway League, one point you, <laughs> five points us. Just, you know, we're up by 10. Uh, I, I don't have sports metaphors, guys. Yeah. I really, I really. I think it's also important to say, because I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning. The Broadway League is made up of producers, the landlords, um, and some managers and regional, the- general managers and regional theaters as well. It's important to emphasize that when I say that, they may are made up of producers and the landlords of the theaters. Mm-hmm. Some of the time, as you can imagine, producers and landlords have diametrically opposed needs and desires. And so that is an inherent conflict of interest. I am not a member of the Broadway League. I won't sit here and say that I never will be a member of the Broadway mm-hmm. League. At the moment, I am not. And so this is a little bit of like a sitting on a high horse and tisking the work that they're that they're doing. But everything that I'm saying is from my perspective as, as a player in the industry, as somebody who's out there and working every day, but not in the room at in those rooms at, at the Broadway League to see the work that they're putting mm-hmm. in. Okay, so I have one more question. And then we're going to take a deep cleansing breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to talk Mel Brooks. But this financial transparency that is being called for, how does that affect the Broadway League? Well, the Broadway League isn't a producer, right? So they can't like, mm-hmm. um, and, and and not to like belabor this, every show is a startup, but it, every show has its own financials. 
and every show has its mm-hmm. own literal structure. And so, and they're private there. It's privately placed. Now you do have to file paperwork with the SEC and with the state governments. And you do. And so like you can, with the freedom of information act, request any information about that, mm-hmm. about how a show started. Um, what I, but what I would say is like, just if you are somebody who is really interested in, in, in economic transparency within theater, the very first thing you have to do, and I'm not like just trying to sell like the business of Broadway or anything, but there is a lot out there already. There are, there is a lot of information out there already. First of all, take your favorite nonprofit theater. You can look up their 990, which is an annual tax form that nonprofit theaters have to file. And you can look up their 990 and you can do, you can find the most fascinating deep dive information and deep dives in there about how your favorite nonprofit theater is run. And, you know, there's a saying that I'm going to, butcher but it, you know that like you know your values are where your dollars go right and mm-hmm. um you can see that within these 990s and then just there are there are books there are incredible resources the producers hub is an organization that's run out of octopus theatricals which is mara isaac's company and mara isaac is the uh lead producer of hadestown which i still haven't seen <laughs> or listened to it was the last <laughs> piece of live theater i saw so Mara, uh, so the producers hub, I actually just did a panel with them last week. They have a great, they, so if you're like someone who's like, I just, I don't even know where to begin. They have a website that's got a great list of resources. Hey, here's where you start. Mm-hmm. I would very much encourage um, anybody who is like, yes, there needs to be economic transparency in theater that like while alongside of doing this work of demanding it to start doing the work of understanding it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And there are those resources. And there, yeah. Good rhyme. Excellent rhyme. Ooh. Wow. Lynn Mamo Miranda is quaking, and so is Mel Brooks. You got both Amanda of them shivering in their boots. It. There you go. There you go. What can I say? I do it all. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Triple threat. Produce. Mother. Rhyme. That's. <laughs> my last question, I actually lied, is because I remember from the panel that you guys did that nonprofit theater doesn't actually mean that they don't rake in a profit. What could you just as briefly break as it down? Explain. Yeah. yeah <laughs> what so is it actually? down now. Essentially, wiki wiki. The first thing, to, the most important thing to understand is that it doesn't. A nonprofit doesn't mean that they can't make profit at the end of the day. They, in fact, they have to. Like they can't, like they can't, like not break even at the end of the day, or they're not going to be able to keep the lights on. It's about what happens with that profit at at at, at the end of the year or at the end of the quarter. For a nonprofit, it goes back into the institution. For a commercial enterprise, it goes out to the stakeholders, to the equity stakeholders. And so when we're talking about nonprofit versus commercial theater, I will also say that because of that structure with nonprofits, they are, um, they're able to be ta- they're, they apply for tax exemption. Therefore, they have certain structures and requirements that are federally and state, manda- and state mandated in order to maintain that tax exemption. Um, but, uh, and, and that is quite a burden. And so like there, there needs to be some serious infrastructure within any nonprofit. But when I talk to people about producing from a nonprofit versus a for-profit perspective, I, I, I always want to emphasize the similarities because if you're talking to somebody who has the capability of writing a $25,000 check to $2 million check, it, you're, you're talking to them in the same way about, about that. You know, you're talking about funding the artistic vision of the creatives. And this is one of the things I I hope that people take away from our business of Broadway class that when you look at where the money is going in a budget, you can really actually see how much of it is going into real people's pockets. 
real people who have union jobs and better than middle class. Uh, well, I mean, it's New York, a New York City middle class living. <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's going into the pockets of of people, of real people. It's not just like mm-hmm. uh, money that when when we say that something costs seventeen million dollars to produce, I didn't. The producers don't take fifteen million, you know, take millions of that and like line their pockets with it. It really does mm-hmm. cost that much money, you know, depending on the show to hire real people Mm -hmm. because we're in an Mm -hmm. industry that is all about theater is nothing but people in my opinion theater is people on Mm -hmm. both like the performing side and on the audience side because you can't have theater without both of those things theater is that magical thing that happens between in in the that that those two in between those two places and um if anybody is is just listening here just know that i'm gesticulating wildly um uh, uh, theater is that is is what happens in that magical space between the performer and the audience and there are depending on how big the theater is thousands of different performances a night thousands of different performances a week thousands and millions and billions of of different performances and experiences happen and so that is at the root of what we are doing. So whether you are a nonprofit, like you didn't know that I was going yeah, to go yeah. that far when you asked about. Yeah, you really took it around to like the mat. You, I said, what is a nonprofit, and you said the magic of theater, baby. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I have a no, tendency to welcome. get real excited about this stuff. No, no stress at all. Um, Heather, well, Heather, Heather. Let's play Ben a minute. Yeah, that was, that was it. You feel you feel comfy with the producers in Ben a minute? Oh, am I doing it? Oh yes. Oh yeah. The guest plays Ben a minute. And oh, my I God. yet again opened the calculator. Oh. Opening a timer for real. Oh, my God. I am. Um, I was. I was like so not thinking that I was going to do Ben a minute. But yes. <laughs> it's okay. The whole yeah, point you is we're there to str- back you up. Like okay. anything you yeah. miss, we're there post one minute. Just, and just to be clear, I I've got I can I have to synopse synopsize synopsize. I have to synapse sum- summarize. <laughs> there summarize, we go. Summarize the show in a minute, right? Yes. One whole minute. Okay. And go. So Max Bialystok is a uh, Broadway, a prolific Broadway producer who has had a string of bad luck. Uh, he meets Leo Bloom, who is an accountant who's always had dreams of being a producer. Uh, they hatch a scheme to raise too much money um, in order to produce a flop and pocket uh, that that they don't spend. Um, uh, during They uh, find a terrible, ter- what they expect to be the, the worst show called Springtime for Hitler, and uh, they hire a creative team that they expect will produce a really terribly received version of it. Um, in, in, uh, during that time, they also uh, bring into the loop uh, Ula, who is um, a the lead in their show slash secretary receptionist. Um, Fifteen seconds. Much much to everybody's surprise, the show is a total hit. Max Bialystok gets goes to jail. Leo and Ula go to Rio <laughs> until Leo comes back and realizes that his friendship meant more to him than being in Rio with Ula, and they live happily ever One after. Minute. Woo! That was okay. <laughs> they live happily they ever live after. Happy, the true professionalism is not at all getting flustered at any point in that. She's like, I'm gonna keep my tone. I'm gonna keep my pace. I got it, and you did. So kudos, yeah, fantastic, I mean, awesome. Did you laugh when they say like, I just need two million to put on a Broadway show because now, <laughs> folks, the average price is like thirteen million oh, for a gosh, Broadway yeah, musical, well, if when that. He, when he first comes in and he's like, Well, you only spent. $98,000 for your $100,000 musical. I was just like, oh. Oh, $100,000 musical. Ooh. 
If only. Yes, listener, I too understand money, and I too am in on this joke. And yes, Addy listener. And understands that 98 is less than 100. Well done, Abby. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> less than, greater than. That's I'm really here, step. everyone. So, Heather, <laughs> Fly Die Retry, the producers. Excellent point. Oh, Fly Die Retry. I, I, um, uh, so fly is good, right? Fly is fly like, is it? Yeah. It's totally. Yep. It may continue as is. Fly, fly. I I have a lot of love in my heart for this show. Um, mm. I saw it in in two thousand and five with Richard Kind and Alan Ruck. Um, uh, Richard Kind actually had a little cameo as the jury foreman, and yeah. um, Alan Ruck was the uh, played Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off with uh, with oh, Matthew Broderick. God. So that's who that was. I saw it in 2005 with my best friend before going to see a preview of Spamalot. So like my recollection of that weekend, it, I was, I it's was, funny. I am old listeners. <laughs> it was like uh, my sophomore year of college spring break. It was like the first time I was in New York city by myself uh, with like just a friend. It was, it was so much fun. And, yeah. um, and then to see this film, I've seen a regional production of the show since then one or two times. And I should also say my mother is a CPA. My mom is an accountant. So oh. the unhappy, the, <laughs> I want to be a producer. Like she would always oh. like laugh about, laugh about that, that scene. Um, and like make me play that um, on the cast album. Um, but I have such beautiful feelings about, um, about this show. And I will also say that, Susan Stroman was the choreographer of the first Broadway show I ever saw, which was Crazy for You. Hmm. I, sorry, I'm like rambling, but we talk about no. a business of Broadway, no. how like your taste is your taste and it might change. Like we actually like, this was a great point. I remember this one too. We yeah. May, like we know this, like scientifically, like your taste, like might um, like slowly become more refined, but your taste is your taste and you're not going to change it. And for me, I grew up on like the Gershwin and the Cole Porter musicals and the big and the musical comedies, and I'm not going to ever not love them. Mm-hmm. And so the yeah. producers and 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 there's nobody. I, I truly believe that there are very few people who do musical comedy today as well as Susan Stroman does. And mm-hmm. um, granted, this you know the movie is. 16 oh 16 years old and the show itself is like 20 is 20 years old as of this week um, yeah yeah but there is only there's yeah. still nobody in my opinion doing this as well as Susan Stroman and so like as a fan of musical comedy mm-hmm. and and comedy like let's talk about Mel Brooks the Mel Brooks of it all that's true I think that this show I thought it held up really well um and um so in the in, in uh, when pressed to make a call fly I love this show. Sick. Cassidy, fly die, retry. I'm being a stick in the mud. It's a retry for me. Um, okay. It's too long, in my opinion. Oh, my God. I knew long. you were going to say that. I, don't, I just don't even think I need to see them come back from Rio. Honestly, like, I think okay, he can go okay. to jail and sing that song, and they can run off to Rio, and we can call the show there, or we, we can... can call it. And we can call it. Or we, I just think there's some snipping that can be done today. I don't want to see a high school do the full two-hour version of this. I think that's lengthy, personally. I also... My only other real catch is it's just kind of hard today to do I want to be a producer with a big old casting couch. That's not the melody of casting couch, but it's fine. There's something uh, like that. Yes, there's a casting couch. couch. There we go. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> Heather said take it up, up at the end, actually. <laughs> and while time-wise,
wise and context wise that applies we have moved to contextualize the casting couch a lot differently by today's yeah. standard and and granted that's really one line but it it is a touch implied throughout the show their relationships with chorus girls the old lady swindling a little bit the old lady swindling but he's really he's into problematic, it problematic but so funny is it problematic when all that's the kind ladies did the rockettes fall with their <laughs> their little whatever walkers i was crying i'm sorry cassie are are we shaming sex workers here like because that's what that's what that's what is doing he's essentially that's the thing that's why i was saying i'm not sure if the stuff with the old women is problematic because he owns that like he's really into that and like he really enjoys that i'll admit i'll admit that that one line um uh, yeah, it the, is the one line. Did go, did go over my head, um, but I did put a lot of thought into the character of Ula, who is supposed to be, I think, representative of this casting couch uh, when she first mm-hmm. enters, and the amount of and the work that they that they did to make it very clear how in control she is the entire yeah. time, how she Ula's is the one an independent, completely character. Yeah, completely in control in that moment, and they're just like befuddled buffoons. I good. think that that's good alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I so I think um, I hear you on on that line and like glorifying it. But if I think if you take if if you would allow a through line from <laughs> yeah a through line from that lyric to the character of Ula and how um, how she essentially like calls their bluff on that, then maybe it's not quite as problematic but you're no I agree I think that's a great point I could I don't know what songs I would cut but I could cut two or three of them all right fair enough I and maybe I was just having a I (sighs) once you hit that two hour mark for me you gotta kind of like be doing and I also when this came out it was gonna be two hours there was there was no real 90 minute music like there was but like this was a huge show yeah I I actually I I agree with Cassidy on the retry, mostly because of the little snippet of the conversation we just had right now. And because I watched the 67. That might be wrong. That is absolutely correct, Abby. Numbers. And I watched the 67, and the 67 is, like, obviously a lot more problematic. The Ula character has no agency, is a complete ditz, like, is definitely part of the joke. And I... I just appreciated that in bringing the producers, which I think is a really funny concept and is a really funny yeah, story. Yeah, I think the concept like, of the show is great, hilarious. Like shtick to it. Like that's just like a really good premise for a musical comedy. You can't deny that. Yeah, that's like, boom, Mel, baby, if you're listening, amazing. But I did appreciate that in bringing it up to 2001 when it was on Broadway and then 2005 for this movie, they upped a lot of the humor and they did make it something that was going to be funny for a modern audience. They made Ula have a lot more agency. From watching the two of them, it was very clear that she was a part of the joke now rather than being made fun of in the other one. And when you see her on stage too, you're like, yes, Ula. Yes, she is yeah. in that lead role that she made for herself. Yeah. And they added the Rio bit to this ending. Um, it was not there in the original. The casting couch thing wasn't belabored the way it was no. in the original movie. Uh, so it's like, in comparing the two, I'm like, okay, good. But I just think it's important to realize that like of the art forms, I feel like comedy changes the most from generation to generation. What we do and do not find funny is just constantly changing. 
So if you are to do a retry of the producers, I just think any time you do a, uh, a retry of a comedy that has so much basis in like cultural context, you do need to just look at the script and make sure that things don't aren't offensive to modern audiences and also just uh, that they're funny. Because there were some jokes in the original that I could tell that it was the joke, but I had absolutely no idea what it meant. I was born not in 1960, so I had no clue what was going on. And I just think that moving forward with the producers, especially because it's been 16 years. Like, I think if you were to do another retry, you would just want to give the script a look over to make sure. I also think maybe don't do it today. We have a whole issue with neo-Nazis today. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't need a revival of the producers right now. I don't I don't need the QAnoners, like, reclaiming springtime for Hitler. That would make no. my heart just shatter. So no. <laughs> It's funny because it's in, a, it's in a sphere where we're like, Nazis bad, that's so clear. And unfortunately, our country has seemed to get a little confused about that one. Mm-hmm. We seem to be mm-hmm. a little confused on that point. It doesn't align super well with the whole resurgence of the neo-Nazi. No! But, I mean... Really rude of them to ruin the producers. It's just like... <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, let's dive in. I... I like this show a lot. We open with opening night, which is kind of everyone. The joke is like it starts that they're super excited and they can't wait to see this show. But the bit is that like it's a flop and they're they're still excited about the spectacle of like going and attending this flop to have something to say about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just I love when a theater show makes fun of theater. I know that it's not accessible humor to non-theater audiences, but I'm sitting there having a good chuckle all to myself. I was also just super impressed with like their recreation of Schubert Alley. I thought it looked really wonderful. Oh yeah, it was so It was very grand in scale. That's another thing I just really appreciated about this film is like everything was done on a really grand scale. I felt like there was real money behind it. And that's always exciting for me to see it. And I really appreciated that. I was watching it with my lighting designer roommate and he was excited because he was like this film is actually stunning and I was like really the producers and boy was he right what was the, <laughs> the film is- why did this get such? why did the movie get such a bad review were people just upset it wasn't Mel Brooks I have absolutely no idea I had a splendid time so viewers if you didn't like it suck it <laughs> you thought I was gonna say peanut butter us <laughs> You thought I cared about your opinion. Joke's on you. Yeah, no. The whole community thing we've been promoting, canceled. I wonder if it was it was just very, um, and I didn't go back and look at any of the reviews of the film, but I, one of the things that I loved about it that I don't know how well this played in 2005 was it was very theater. It was very theatrical. Yeah. It was very, it was played very much like I remember it being, very clearly remember it, it being staged. It didn't feel movie musical. It didn't like, feel like a, it didn't feel like a movie. And I, today, into, you know, I am watching that and I very much appreciate it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, Stroman, like Susan Stroman, nobody does it like you. When Ula and Leo, not to get ahead of ourselves but like when they getting frisky behind the couch and it's the whole that scene is stunning that was almost if i remember correctly exactly how it was staged um and i i and i think though like if this was like hey we're just going to make a a movie and it's a musical and susan stroman wasn't like the director of it they wouldn't have kept it that way and i loved it yeah um i won't go through every single song in this show but i'll i'll do some groupings that's what we'll do so after opening night we have the king of broadway we can do it, and I want to be a producer. 
Yeah. This is kind of the moment where Matthew Broderick characters Leo, Matthew Broderick's character Leo, he explains to Nathan Lane's Bialystok that if there's some sort of way where if they had raised the right amount of money and then had the perfect flop, that Bialystok could actually get more money from that than he would have hit. Bialystok's like, that's a great scheme. And then Matthew Broderick's like, I'm so nervous. It's not a scheme. I didn't mean to think of it. And then Bialystok's like, you could be a producer, baby. And then he's like, no. And he runs away and he goes to be an accountant and then he's like I want to be a producer and you and show the accountants going unhappy unhappy mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. very 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 <laughs> unhappy so funny really well done and shot well too with all the accountants so then we move on to so Leo comes back and we can do it refuse tells him like yeah all right I'm in I want an exciting life now then we go through in old Bavaria I'm not even going to pr- try to pronounce the German, but the tag hop clop. Uh, <laughs> and then keep it gay. So it's basically like them kind of workshopping. They're getting all these different ideas. And then they go to the playwright for springtime for Hitler. And he's like, oh my goodness, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to give a platform for the Fuhrer. He's like, this is such a great opportunity to clear Hitler's name. <laughs> and they're like, oh, uh, but they just kind of keep rolling with it. It's it's Will Ferrell in the movie, too. It was so and funny. Will Ferrell does not get enough credit for this role, in my opinion. I thought this, I thought, <laughs> A, brilliantly cast that they thought of him for this. Um, Just so well done and so funny. And so he's got them all singing and then like Sig Heiling. And it's uh, in a world where I feel like the Jewish community like didn't love Jojo Rabbit. Like some of them really vibed with it. But I think the older Jewish community had a harder time with the comedy around that. uh I don't feel like there was that hard of a time for I'm of the Jewish community, Heather. So just in case you don't you don't think I'm just going off. Uh, But (laughs) I didn't there wasn't that much offense around this. Like everyone was pretty in on the joke here. No, Mel Brooks was like very famously on record as being like, like Jews like couldn't throw their money fast enough at me to invest in this show and to be producers <laughs> on this show. And I am also, if I didn't mention it, I am also of the Jewish fame. <laughs> I'm also a member of the tribe. Yes, yes, we love. <laughs> and then they're they go to more investors who is and, and an actor who essentially is going oh. to be in who's going to play Hitler, right? No, because no, eventually yeah. they're trying to cast Hitler. Two things. One, to keep it gay. I I was sitting there and I was like, okay. Do I have a problem with this? And again, in the 2005 production, I was like, I just feel like everybody's in on the joke. I felt so strongly that everyone was in on the joke and it was making fun of like the stereotypes of what we see. And very theater-centered too. I really yeah. liked that this actor's like, mm, sorry, I take the shows with pizzazz. <laughs> like, Yeah. Or also when they were, inter- when the director he introduces his team and it's just a bunch of different gay men. <laughs> my roommate was like, it's the village people. And I was like, oh my God. And when he was like, and here's our lighting designer. And I was like, if a dyke doesn't walk down I those know, stairs. I know, that next, was the And a dyke part. walked down those stairs, baby. It's <laughs> so perfect. I think it's great. I also like, you know, it's not punching down. It's, no. They, they are. That's a huge much, thing. They are in control. Like, they're not saying like, we're like, they're, they're like, we are going to, this is theater. We're going to do mm-hmm. it the way that it's done best. And that's gay. And that's yeah. the joke. 
and like and, and, and no some one truth to, to that too in a time of lacage and yeah no yeah, one knows yeah. how to do gay better than better than this team and we're going to show you why and gary beach and roger bart are so phenomenal in this so in this well number done. i mean at gary beach i just i, I remembered roger how good roger bart was in this and roger bart's great and everything but gary beach in this role in this movie i was just living it was the, the biggest revelation of, of the rewatch for me just how good he is in that role yeah i love yeah. this scene i was like all right how how are we gonna do man in dress am i gonna get a transphobic little dig in there they just exist in odd spots in movies if there was one i didn't catch it and i felt like it was funny and i felt like the comedy didn't just come from like he he man in dress so no i felt like he very sincerely enjoyed dressing that way like it wasn't that wasn't where the joke was which i think when you see him you're like okay this is what we're gonna be making fun of now and no 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 we're making fun of so many other things actually we're busy right now thank you come back later so yeah <laughs> then to get us to the bottom of act one we got wait, the bottom the end can you tell i'm looking at a song list and saying what's the last one the bottom of it uh so when you got it flaunt it which is ula singing about like look, like, if there's not women in this show, what are you doing? And I think this is a really great point that ties back to what Heather was kind of saying earlier in that, like, Ula had agency because she didn't really have this song as much in the original movie from what I remember. And I think this really proves that Ula does have agency because she's, like, she's using what she's got to get where she wants to be. And the, she's making the choice to be there. She's also using a cat call. Like, she's also taking somebody who, like, yeah. cat called her on the way there to be like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then we have Along Came Bialy in the Act 1 finale, which is... Yeah, them kind of getting ready to make this show happen, essentially, and all that comes with that. We jump mm -hmm. into Act 2, which is that face. I wanted to just say one quick thing. Nobody does, like, tap dancing with a ridiculous prop like her. Yeah, yeah. that's so... All the tap numbers in this are spectacular. You're right. My next hyperfixation should be Strowman. I think that's what I'm learning from this episode, Aww, is that I should just go and, like, that. stalk everything she's done. It was so hilarious. So then we have, um, so we have that face, and then we have another German song, which is essentially <laughs> Franz being like, none of these people are playing Hitler correctly. And so he gets up and does the number, and they're mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. oh, all right, great, you're cast. I like the use of like making opening night a reprise here too. Like it opened the show and now we have another mm -hmm. opening. Um, you never say good luck on opening night is really funny. Essentially like all the nervous actors, he, he goes around and intentionally says good luck to them because he wants the show to flop and all of them yeah, are just, just pissed about it. Listeners, if, if you don't know, you don't say good luck. You say break a leg. I have I couldn't tell you the lore behind no that. idea why we say that. Does well, anybody? Yeah, there are there are, there's a bunch of theories. Um, I always liked the um, the theory that um, so you have like the legs of the curtain on the side, uh -huh. and uh, back in the vaudeville days, or maybe even before that, you didn't get paid if you don't go on stage, and uh -huh. so it was um, like that. Like once you broke the leg, once you were like actually out on stage, oh, you were gonna get paid. I like paid. that. I, I like that's that. That's my favorite. That's my favorite of the interpretations. Break a leg. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yeah, and then we've got we've the got opening the big... of the actual. Yeah, 
Um, so it's called Springtime for Hitler. They Springtime for Hitler and Germany. And it was stunning. And then, like, just talk about a production number. Um, Springtime for Hitler is just, like, one of, honestly, like, one of the great production numbers of the 21st century, I think. So then we have where do we, where, so we watch people storm out. So they, they're, get, they're getting the impression that this is, like, going poorly, like they've planned, which is what they want. But then, like, it's a hit. They're reading all the reviews. A review after review says it's great. So that's where did we go right with Leo and Max. And then, yeah, people start to ask questions. They have a lot of money that they're going to need to follow up on that they don't really have. That scene in the that scene in the office, though, like after they realize that it's a hit and like yeah. everyone everyone thinks that they were like purposefully satiring it, uh, uh, satiring Hitler. Um, that scene in the office with the cops, I just like just that is like classic Mel Brooks. You know, you have like the like the Irish cops and yeah, 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 yeah. Just, it was just such great writing and performances all around. Good, good yeah. stuff. Yeah, I I don't know the the show is stunning, but it kind of wrapped up for me here too. Yeah, Cassidy. same. I it could have it could have been here for me. So then we have betrayed which is Max when he goes to jail and Leo runs off to Rio with Ula. You both are okay with the show ending before Betrayed? Like the big, his big I like I number. like it because it's, and especially with you having an improv background, of course, it's replay the show, the improv game. That's like Nathan well, Lane does right there. It's a stunning number. The lighting is beautiful. Gorgeous. It's like maybe one of the most visually pleasing numbers in the show. I mean, it literally just recapped the show and I'm like, it's not like I went yeah. anywhere. It's not like I had a commercial break. It, cool. I didn't need the recap. Yeah, but like, I, but sometimes you just like, that, that like, it, it's a tour de force. <laughs> Can a show I understood the comedy like, need, bit of like, that. Then you, but then you get, right. you gotta get to the satisfying end of the love story in a musical comedy. And what I love about this is that the love story is between the two, is between Leo and Max. Okay. It just didn't. Trust me when I say that, like, my favorite words in all of theater history is 90 minutes, no intermission. So, like, yeah. I am huge on trimming the fat, but it just didn't bother me the, the way that it did the two of you. And this is another, I don't think it would have bothered me if it were live. And even when it's a bootleg, I'm like, this is a live experience someone captured for me illegally. I will not, at like, I will not critique any of the filming process, but when it's a film, I'm like, you know, I could be, I could, I could be making dinner right now. Like I'm in my own home. Like it's just, it's a little bit. I told different. you both. I told you both that I like watch this ten minutes at a time. Like I think I said that before we started recording. I, I like, I, I had to rent it twice because I ran out of uh, time to watch it the first day. Yeah. So we get till him. We get prisoners of love. Which is after they both go to jail together because their love story wraps up in jail. But then, of course, the show that they start developing in jail becomes their next Broadway hit. And it's what they open and they live happily ever after having developed their next Broadway hit in jail together. Which <laughs> is arts-based activism, which is what I'm all about. Pris arts and prisons. So. <laughs> That's my You're whole right. mission statement, folks. But, yeah. This was an enjoyable watch through and through. It I like theater that inserts joy. And I feel like while I love a big meaty point just as much, we are losing a little bit of that, which I think is why I am so team SpongeBob because it was one of the newer inserting joy shows that I saw. I, I think that's beautiful. I think I, 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 theater is joy for me. And so I definitely gravitate, like I said, to the musical comedy that like is escapism. 
ultimately. So that's um that thank you. I have to say like when you said what we were going to be watching like I I wasn't as excited as I should have been. Like I didn't have like any like it wasn't anything bad. It was just like um, I don't have a lot to say about the producers. Um, and then rewatching it just took me back. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to revisit this this really yeah. special show. Well, I, I'm very grateful that you came on the pod yeah. and shared your big old brain. And you made <laughs> me realize that I maybe should have been an econ major, but it's too late. Yeah, yeah. I'm also just really happy that we got to talk to the producers. I'm glad that I finally had an excuse to watch it. Holy crap. It's yeah. perfect. It's funny. I mean, it's not perfect. It really is. It's so funny. It's so funny. Heather, we will link everything on our notes and in our descriptions, but where can people find you? Where can we learn more about the business of Broadway? How do yeah. we get on board? Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, so it's really simple. Thebusinessofbroadway.com. All of our social is at B-I-Z of Biz. B-U-A, Biz of B-U-A. Um, That's uh, so we cool. We just launched um, our uh, TikTok and we're, we're starting to generate some more material there. Um, so hopefully by the time this comes out, we have a couple more videos we on there. We say that every episode. So yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe there'll be a Broadway bullshit TikTok that we can duet with. Yeah, that would be fun. Um, and uh, so that's where I am. We would love to have you. The classes are, you do not have to come in with any knowledge whatsoever. I'm going to sign like, up. I'm super excited. I'm jealous that Abby got to do this. I'm going to say 12 out of 10 recommend. They send a whole packet. You can read over things. Yeah. And and they like, they really do try and make it interactive and fun. Like it's, it was not just sitting there being lectured for a couple of hours. And and we're all just really passionate about it. And we would love to have you. We'd keep the classes small, um, but only about 15 people, you know, like, so like we're kind like really are fostering a, a community, even if we are all behind a computer lens. Well, bullshitters, we cannot tell you what next week is because next week is either SpongeBob or Shrek. Keep your eyes peeled, folks. There's going to be an insta poll, and I'm taking names of all the people well, that are going to vote against me. Well, also, by the time this episode drops, we will have uh, already polled it. So, <laughs> well, they'll be listening. No. Well, yeah. no, but like the way that we record. Give them the illusion that they're voting, Abby. You're voting! They are voting. They are voting. It's just like the way that time works also. Like they will have already voted. The polls will be closed. You will have voted because you're active on all of our social media because we know you are. Which is really cool of you. Which is great. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Nick Soy, for linking me to Biz of Broadway. Thank you to Biz of Broadway. Oh my gosh. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Biz of Broadway and Heather Shield. Thank you to Lily Guo. Thank you to Sarah Lassert. Thank you to my roommates for not a single interruption on this episode. Not a single noise. I saw you lock the door and I felt the exact same. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. You're the best. Uh, um, Thank you, bullshitters. Bye.